Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Lowe's. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, it's Jack Beckman, Clay Milliken, and Bruno Massel talking Nitro and Pro Stock. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that Pro Stock car. We're getting ready for the Dodge Indy Nationals next weekend. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace! This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey, everybody. Brian Loans back again with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this show. We are between races. Next week, we will be getting fully prepared for the Dodge NHRA Indy Nationals, which will be happening, of course, right back at Lucas Oil Raceway, Indianapolis. It'll be our third event in a row there during this season of, frankly, just doing whatever it takes to get drag races completed down the racetrack as many of you know we talked a little bit about it last week of course the final rounds that were rained out in nitro funny car top fuel pro modified and factory stock showdown will be contested at the denzo spark plug u.s nationals so it's kind of interesting we're leaving some of those elements on the table so to speak and then we will be completing those elements um, a couple of races down the road As I speak to you today, the schedule for NHRA stands as the Dodge Indy Nationals, August 8th to the 9th, the next race being Topeka, Kansas, which uh, we are waiting uh, and hopeful uh, with confirmation that we'll be able to compete in Topeka, Kansas. It is like every other um, situation, every other state in the country, whereas a lot of work being done with local officials, with health officials, with the local racetrack to make sure that we have uh, our ducks in a row, make sure, frankly, that we have permission to hold an event of the size of an NHRA national event in that area. Last weekend at Heartland Motorsports Park, they had a very large Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series double divisional, and it was by all means uh, a very successful event, huge car counts, um, all the reports coming back to, to fans of, of sportsman drag racing and people that pay attention to this stuff were that the competitors you know wore masks and followed all of the rules that were laid out for them not just by the local municipality but also the nhra protocols that have been worked on extensively and exhaustively over the course of this uh, entire whole COVID 19 situation following topeka we're supposed to go to atlanta and that would be the last week in august and then the last weekend in august and then we would return to indy for the denzo spark plugs u.s nationals on Labor Day weekend, which is uh, obviously when we normally have that race. So that's kind of the short-term outlook. So Indy, and uh, I certainly have no problem being in Indy, but we are looking to leave Indy at least for a couple weeks before returning for what is traditionally the only event we run there, and which will be at minimum the fourth event we run there of the 2020 season. That's one of the things I want to talk to Jack Beckman and Clay Milliken about, is what it means to be, uh, frankly, consistently at the same racetrack. And this is a very different thing on so many levels. If you're a local bracket racer or a local drag racer in your whatever municipality you live in, you have your home track and you race there. And that's how it goes for the majority of people that compete in the sport of drag racing around the country. You have a home track, you race at that place week in and week out. They know you, you know them. It's kind of like, you know, your favorite local restaurant or favorite local watering hole you kind of know the ins and outs of it with us typically you see these places once a year and they all have their own kind of signature their own kind of fingerprint but you don't really have a chance to make so many runs run in consistent conditions so many times at the same place that you can hone in on certain things you can hone in on certain aspects of the racetrack hone in on certain elements of the competition so i want to talk to clay milliken about that i want to talk to jack beckman about that today just kind of an interesting point beckman brought up a great point at the last race where he said hey uh, it's still indy the trophy's still the same size he said but winning a race here is still winning a national event at indy and well it's not the u.s nationals every week we race there it does have the same feeling if you're a baseball player and you show up to Fenway Park, you show up to you know what was then the old Yankee Stadium, you show up to Wrigley Field, um, you're a football player, you're playing in Soldiers Field in Chicago, these legendary places, you want to win there to say that you won there. So um, uh, that's part of the motivation as well. Bruno Massa will be the third man and third guest on this show, a rare three-guest program here today. But I feel like I want to talk to Bruno, not so much about 
what's been going on the last couple of weeks with him driving his pro stock car. But I really want to talk to Bruno about how he got here because I'm not sure a ton of people know. I always introduce him on the show as a two-time you know, NHRA competition eliminator world champion because he is. But what happened before that? You don't just fall out of bed and become a two-time champion in one of the NHRA's arguably most ridiculously difficult categories in both the driver and mechanical skill level. So I want to talk to Bruno less about driving a pro stock car in 2020 and a whole lot more about what led to this moment and really kind of what got him off the starting blocks. Because again, you're talking about a guy with a very interesting background that I think a lot of people may not be aware of. So we'll catch up with Bruno on those subjects. In terms of other happenings around the sport of drag racing, um, I can't say it has been a uh, very busy couple of weeks or a very busy week since our last show in terms of breaking news or things changing, things coming out. Um, And frankly, that's probably a good thing at this time of the year. And certainly during 2020, it does not seem like we're being overrun with good news at every turn. So when we have a week with relatively little news, um, that's probably a comforting thing for drag racing and everybody else. Thankfully, knock on wood, it seems um, people are maintaining their health. We've not uh, heard of any other drivers that have been uh, come down with the virus or have any issues on that front. And looking forward to having some interesting and good fields when we get back to the NHRA Dodge Nationals in Indy next weekend. Once we do next week's show, we'll really set that race up probably a little bit different. But this week, I wanted to catch up with these three particular racers to uh, get their impressions on what's going on, how things are going, and what they can do better and maybe what they can continue to be successful with as we race in Indy again next week. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Clay Milliken, driver of the Parts Plus Top Fuel Dragster, Larice Motorsports Insurance, and other great sponsors on this car. Clay, how you doing, man? Man, I tell you what, I hope third time is a charm. That's that's (laughs) what I was so excited when you said uh, you wanted me to come on again, and it's like, all right, this is cool. Maybe this will uh, bring bring me luck at the third trip to Indy. I'm, I'll tell I'm you. To tie those, I'm trying to tie those numbers together. Yeah, I did the same thing. And during the open of the show, I was like, I was going to say it was our our second race at Indy. Then it's like, no, this is actually going to be the third one. And then, of course, we actually have one scheduled later on down the line. And, you know, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because obviously we've seen uh, your race car and your team have some real serious teeth at this racetrack. It hasn't translated into a Wally yet, but. I guess one of the questions I had for you is, are there actual benefits of being in the same place multiple times like we are in terms of learning? Well, I mean, the track surface, while yes, it's the exact same track surface, you know, the weather just depends on it so much. I mean, the guys do a good job prepping it. Long story short, it probably does, but at the same time, you know, I would think that it would benefit the multi-car teams that are sharing that track information. But I think the heat has been a benefit to us, you know, being hotter. Uh, Mike seems to do a good job when it's hot out. And, you know, it was uh, a little aggravating and frustrating to us at the first one. You know, we were, (laughs) you know, number one qualifier going in to the last session. And we were the last pair of cars about to roll forward and, got shut off you know it's like oh man and so we we felt like we had a little validation you know at the second one where we did go number one and stayed number one but but again you know it hasn't translated to rounds and and that too is very frustrating but it's race car you know uh we had the most odd weird thing happen first round yeah i was going to ask you about that because it just it from our vantage point it was difficult to even discern what had happened because it looked like it looked like every hole went out at once i just i couldn't figure it out yeah me neither uh probably what (laughs) (laughs) and 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 i i honestly missed it completely as a driver you know i'll admit it uh but but i'm a backup so you know we feel like we've got a, a, a tune-up that will get us the round win. You know, we weren't going out there trying to go to low ET. You know, we're racing Terry Haddock's car, and, and I said this to everybody, you know, that that car has gotten to the point where now it, it goes down the racetrack, and yeah. if you make a mistake, it's, it's going to get you, you know. And so we do the burnout, and at the end of the burnout – in the car, we have a reset button, and what that button does essentially is, you know, it pushes the throwout bearing back in position if it moved during the burnout. It resets the MSD timing map. Gotcha. 
I reached up when I touched the button, the car cut off. Whoa. My, yes. Pulled my finger off the button. The car started running again. I mean, this was a very quick momentary car shut off, you know, which can be, you know, it was kind of scary. I was going to say that has its yeah. own, that has its own potential <clears throat> disastrous consequences. Yeah. Yes, very much so. I mean, you know, like I said, I touch the button. Usually I hold it for a couple seconds because it's just, you know, putting CO2 back into the system and the car, the thing, the moment I touch it and it goes dead, I'm like, oh, that's scary. You know, pull my finger away and it, and it runs again, you know. So uh, when I'm backing up, Kenny Carson's the guy that backs me up. He's our clutch guy. He's His eyes are big as saucers, you know, because he heard it. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> truth be told, mine probably or two, you know, <laughs> like what in the world, you know, so I'm on the radio. I told Mike, Hey, this thing went dead when I hit the reset button. And he doesn't say anything. I'm like, man, did you not hear me? You know? And then when I get backed up, he leans in the car and we're that way we can look at each other. And we're both on the radio. I said, when I hit the reset button, the thing went dead. And he said, don't touch that button. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Like the doctor joke, you know, and hey, doc, it hurts when I do this. Oh, okay. Well, don't do that. <laughs> right. You know, but so we leave the starting line, and yes, essentially it put a ton of holes out. My backside told me that it spun the tires. Sure. So I pedaled it, which didn't help at all. <clears throat> but Long story short, several hours and lots of diagnosis later, it appears as though we had a air pressure regulator go out, and it allowed the air to go low enough that it essentially set the safety system off. Okay. Wow. Momentarily, you know, like the air would go down real low, and then it would come back up. It was weird. So weird. Like I said, just one of those race car things. You know, it's, it's not like you have to change the air pressure regulator on these cars all the time but now it appears that this is something that you should change once in a while at very least oh it's insane i mean it's insane for a guy like you that's been doing this for as many years as you've been doing it has seen as many things as you've seen the fact that anybody out there can be literally surprised by something like this on any given weekend because this is not just something that happens to your team it happens to everybody over the course of time and it's like it's mind-boggling to me just because these variables in these cars are there's a million of them right and it's a guy once said a couple weeks ago i heard a guy say you know there's a million things that happen when you try to come off the starting line in a dragster only one of them is good (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) that's that's true that's very true i mean you know it's like holy crap how you know how can this happen you know but it did you know and uh it's frustrating, aggravating, you know, we felt like we could have won the round. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is it put a lot of holes out and it did not like it, and I feel like we're fortunate that the thing didn't blow up, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so no, I, I agree. Of- yeah I agree with that, too. I mean, like you said, it's uh, the thing shutting off and starting again like that can be can be crazy so yeah with your eyes getting wide i understand that that must have been a real what (laughs) kind of oh yeah yeah i mean you know we've seen crazy stuff on the starting line when people hit the throttle over the years i mean well actually the the first indie weekend kyle wurzel's car you know that yeah yeah you know uh you can go back in time to the huge doug herbert explosion at pomona you know it's it's it definitely uh if Again, being the old guy, having seen a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, I'm like, ooh, what's going to happen here when I hit this, hit this throttle, you know? Yeah, and it's, I guess that's that's one of those weird benefit, you know, one of those situations that has two sides wherein, okay, you have the presence of mind to understand there's something wrong where a young driver might not, but on the other side of it, you understand that this something that might be wrong could have some pretty drastic consequences. So I guess you it's like anything else the more you know about stuff sometimes the uh, the more it can weigh on your mind as opposed to <laughs> as opposed oh, to yeah. ignorance is I, bliss right yes absolutely i promise you it showed up in my reaction time i still left first but i had a horrible wipe because i'm like you know you've got that hesitation of do i really want to hit the throttle here you know oh yeah no i mean you back in the day we've all <laughs> seen those old videos run mostly in funny cars but the guy would step on the throttle would just barf the blower off it like the second he stepped on the gas you know it's like yeah how do you get yeah. back in there and do that again yeah that is funny you know daryl gwynn was was at the race and it which is always awesome to see him and uh kind of just told him the same story and he's he just he says well you know 
you had the safest spot to be for that. And I'm like, I know, but I still like those guys that work on my car. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in terms of those guys that work on your car, I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of from the inside perspective of being a competitor at these events. I know, I know what it was like for me as a, you know, media guy at the events, but I want to talk to you about as, as a competitor, how much, how much different was it week one to week two in terms of being, if not comfortable, maybe a little bit more used to the protocols and stuff that were in place? Uh, definitely more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the first weekend, all of us were were just like huffing and puffing, trying to breathe through yeah. the mask while working on the car and, and not complaining about it. I mean, if, you know, if they tell us I need to wear my gas mask that I wear when we warm the car up <laughs> right. to, to go racing, I'm going to wear it, you know. And the first weekend, it was definitely tough. You know, it's like the thing's so hot when it makes a run and that sort of thing. And second weekend, you know, it was like, oh, okay, you know. It was maybe not any easier, but definitely something that you become used to. You know, it's kind of like a, a splinter in your finger you can't get out. After a few days, you kind of forget about it. And next thing you know, you're just doing your job. And, you know, it's it's different. Yeah. I mean, probably the one thing that felt more normal the second weekend was we probably had double the amount of people there. Yes. And yeah, that, that, was, that was definitely bigger. Yeah. Yes. You know, the, the first weekend, it was just everything just felt so strange. It was like a summertime test session in Indy, you know, which we do have one, you know, but it's like this is just odd and. So having the people there, like, I'm bad about when I stop at the bur end of the burnout looking up at the grandstands to, to kind of check out how many people are watching us, you know? Sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think I, I think most, you know, most race car drivers are show outs. And oh, absolutely. I, I, re I readily admit that, you know, it's like, hey, there's more people here. Well, you know, so. you know, the thing that was wild to me, and even on both weeks, was that, you know, when we had the Lucas Oil Chopper there, it's like the overhead shots of that west side of the racetrack with nobody on it. Because that's all, you know, that's where all the sportsman cars are at the U.S. Nationals. And when you, you just see all this green grass, it was like, man, this is weird. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're doing this. And, man, it's weird. And I think the the good news for this next upcoming Indy is that, there, well, there is a still a cap on how many tickets they will sell. Anybody can buy a ticket at this point. They're not restricting it to, you know, U.S. Nationals, ticket holders, or NHRA members, which was kind of the first two races. So I think we should see another kind of increase in, uh, in crowd, which, you know, watching professional sports now, baseball's back out playing – thank god these cars make noise because trying to watch yes. a, trying to watch a baseball game in silence is just too weird <laughs> yeah you just hear the smacking of bubble gum and chewing of yeah. uh, sunflower seeds <laughs> yeah it's gross bunch of guys spitting stuff all over the place but yeah thank god <laughs> you know thank god we got the noise of the race cars because um as much as i want to hear the people yelling and screaming and cheering at least we have uh, we kind of have that to hang our hat on yeah you know and, and talking about the west side of the grandstands you know and again, you know, it stopped at the end of the burnout. You try to look over, and, you know, it's always like a, a game every year. Do your burnout, look over to that side, and see if you see Brett Kepner's big white Lincoln rolling in. Yes. You know? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. <sighs> yeah, uh, he is um, – his his classic move is obviously to – he manages somehow every year to guide his way down the return road with no real business of being there. He all of a sudden, <laughs> you look up, and it's like the shark from Jaws just kind of driving by down there, and he makes sure to wave to the – he waves to the tower and everybody else on the way by. But um, he, uh, he was actually – Telling information I'm not supposed to oh, tell there, but we all know it. That's great stuff. And, um, you know, what was interesting for Brett was the last Indy race was the exact to the day, 50th anniversary of the day he went to his first ever drag race as a kid. And uh, he had planned on coming. He was wanting to come, I should say, from St. Louis to Indy. Uh, he's been a little under the weather lately. And yeah. A couple of factors combined with that, and he's you know he's like, hey man, I can't sit outside in ninety five billion degree heat, you know. So he um he did go to a drag race by his house, but uh, he didn't. He watched us on uh, I believe he watched on NHRA.tv. So he was there in spirit with us. Absolutely, absolutely. But but it is. It's like, where's the big white Lincoln? Can I catch it coming down through there? <laughs> <laughs> So I guess, uh, you know, looking ahead to what will be the Dodge Indy Nationals coming up here in just about two weeks, or I guess a little bit less than two weeks now, 
Um, other than kind of weird, freaky breakage, what do you guys take into that race? I would assume the weather's going to be close. It's going to be boiling hot and very humid like the last two have been. Um, I guess, how do you translate that into uh, into maybe a couple of round wins on Sunday, barring, you know, any weird mechanical <laughs> failures? I, I mean, I, I feel like we're in a good spot. Uh, I can tell you for sure that Chris Minipace, which is our car chief and yep. and he is he's ate up with what happened like he's he didn't want anybody to help him rehose the car essentially he wanted he's like i've got this i'm doing it uh that that kid is amazing he he is going to be a big name crew chief in the future of drag racing he he is absolutely 100 percent dialed into what's going on and i told him i said hey i I'll, I'll come help you and he's like nope i'm doing this this is frustrating it's aggravating and i'm gonna lay these he essentially is taking all the airlines off the car even though we determined it to be the regulator you know he's just going that one step further you know what if there's a piece of trash somewhere what if you know all the yeah. what ifs that there could be you know so for for us, I mean, we're excited to get back at it again in Indy, uh, hopefully with no uh, weird CO2 problems, which I think that Chris is going to take care of. And, you know, the rest of the guys are pretty much, you know, it's like, okay, you know, let, let's head right back to Indy again, you know. Yeah. And we're, we're in a weird spot. You know, we're not part of the, the Indy club, yet several of our guys do live there, you know. So it's been – you know, good for those guys, you know, and, and a lot of the nitro cars, obviously they're from there, but our shop is only four hours away. So, you know, what am I looking forward to? I'll take the same kind of weather and, and we, you know, you asked me about the track. I think, again, I, I still feel like the multi-car teams have an advantage just because they shared the track information. Forget the tune-up information. The track right. information to me was a huge advantage to the multi-car teams and uh but I, I'm, I'm ready i mean i think our team's ready to go rounds and you know it's indy's been weird for me if you look back <clears throat> i don't know how many number one qualifiers i've had there but it's been several yes it has um uh, but it hasn't translated to, to rounds there you know and i had the same thing going at gainesville but i've now made a, a few final rounds there so i'm ready to go some rounds here because with the shortened season and the standard points format, you know, we, we've all got some catching up to do to, to old Doug Coletta there. Yeah, and uh, the, the Doug Coletta's story to me this year has just been uh, consistency in his race car, unlike we've probably seen in a lot of years, and that's uh, been working to their benefit for sure. Um, I guess one other question for you, um, I know you're a fan of the sport in general. You know, you, you, you pay attention to a bunch of different stuff. Um, I happen to be up at that million-dollar bracket race deal a couple of weeks ago up in Michigan. I know you were kind of following <clears throat> along with that. And as somebody who came out of the world of sportsman drag racing and kind of climbed the ladder and, you know, raced with guys like Johnny Labusa's father and everything else back in the day, what were your impressions of seeing a guy make a run that was theoretically anyway worth $1.1 million at the end of that night? <laughs> Not only did Cisco do that, but to come back the next day and win another hundred grand yeah. in a different car. I mean, I think that could be, I mean, somebody's going, you know, somebody like Luke Bagacki's going to come back and, and, and give me something better, but that may be, the greatest performance in sportsman drag racing history. I mean, because of the stakes that were involved and then to find out that, you know, they felt like they were having some, some trouble with the car and they, you know, like fifth or sixth round, they put 60 pounds of weight in the trunk of the thing, you know, and <laughs> I've, I've never in my life seen or heard a better performance than what cisco laid down and let's just add to that for the people that may or might if, if you follow sportsman racing at all you may not have heard of steve cisco but chances are you've heard of anthony bertozzi yes anthony anthony owned the car that won the 1.1 million dollars you know as if that guy don't win enough all the time <laughs> on his own because he went right out and, and won the jake right, sports, sports national speed week <laughs> you know so uh it's good to be Anthony right now, no question about it. Yeah. But there's I don't I don't know of a better performance than what Cisco put together, you know, 
two days, two different cars. And I mean, you know, you could compare that to, to some of the NHRA national event doubles, but to do it that many rounds, different days, different cars for that much money, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. And, and I think the hundred thousand dollar win on Sunday, um, is even in some ways more impressive to me because I know he was not tucked into his bed at 11 p.m. that night. <laughs> you think? <laughs> so the fact that he probably saw the sunrise on Sunday morning and uh, maybe knocked off an hour or two of sleep and was able to climb into something and, and just and go be once again like telepathic was was unbelievable. And like you said, I, I myself personally, I feel like it's probably the most impressive thing I've ever watched. And I, and I look at the competition – that was up there and you know not not a lot of these guys are household names and that's fine they're household names within that section of the sport but they're not necessarily known like a clay milliken is to to generalize drag racing fans but once you get inside that bubble and you watch how the men and women competed up there it's astonishing i mean i've seen lots of good sports and racing as have you over the years but that was a completely different level from anything i had ever watched absolute unbelievable and you know I get a little frustrated when I see people, you know, say something, you know, talk about super comp cars. What is that? You know, throttles, you know, shutting and opening. And the other day, Cole Cummins posted a video from inside his dragster, and he was making a joke to his dad about his neck being sore from looking over. It's an awesome video. And and that's what I posted about. If, if the general public figured out what's going on it is some of the most competitive racing there is on the planet hands down i mean these guys are you know they're they're laser sharp on the starting line you know it, double O lights and in, in the case of super comp super gas you know super street they're trying to run a 90 a lot of them are are you know nowhere near making their car go 90 they're you know they're holding numbers and they're yes. trying to close it up at the finish it, it's an incredible unbelievable sport that once you get in that circle like you say it is fascinating to me how good some of these guys are what they do you know holding numbers picking a spot you know there's so many different ways to go about it and the good guys still even with all that going on still come out on top a lot it's it's I love I love sportsman drag racing. That's all there is to it. Yeah, the repeatability of it is the thing that blew me away. In terms of you know, I bracket raced for years and I won like a handful of rounds, and I so I, I was never able to do the same thing twice ever. Not on the same weekend, <laughs> not in my life was I ever able to do the same thing twice on a racetrack. And then I'd watch these guys go seven, eight, nine rounds and able and they're making adjustments, but they're able to snug it up at the finish line they're they're drawing these guys in and they're locking them down and it's like it's just unreal and you know they were very concerned with tech up there they were you know tearing guys cars apart as they should have to make sure everything was on the up and up for the amount of money involved and they didn't find anything on anybody's car that was uh illegal to have and it was just um it was just talent and it was really fun to watch that talent i know you were uh, keeping an eyeball on it as well oh man it's 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 exciting and Again, I wish, you know, more of the general public kind of was able to, to grasp it and understand what's going on because the racing is awesome. I don't I don't care if one car leaves first and the other car's chasing or whatever the case may be. The amount of talent that it takes and how good the cars are yeah. is just a thing of beauty. Yeah, it was awesome. It was a really uh, really neat experience, and I certainly know you appreciated everything that happened up there. Clay Milliken, driving the Parts Plus Top Fuel Dragster, taking care of business, and uh, obviously Larice Motorsports Insurance involved in your operation as well. you got great partners there, and look forward to seeing you at the Dodge Nationals, my man. Man, I appreciate it so much, and uh, and again, you know, I'll uh, I'll wave to you from the tower up there, <laughs> but yeah. uh, it's, it's nice that we're all racing. I appreciate all the fans that are coming out, and you know, to be back out on the racetrack is awesome because the four months at home was way too much work. That's a fact, Jack. <laughs> that is a fact, <laughs> Jack. Clay Milliken, thank you very much, man. I will see you in about 10 days in beautiful Indianapolis, Indiana. Thanks, Brian. Well, after a great conversation with Clay Milliken, we transitioned to the Nitro Funny Car category to catch up with the current points leader in Nitro Funny Car, Jack Beckman. How you doing, man? How about that, huh? Good to talk with you again, Brian. 
Yeah, so this is uh, this is as topsy-turvy weird as it gets, but you are the points leader right now, leading uh, two of your teammates, and you're also uh, a finalist from the last race, which we will not determine if you win or not until the U.S. Nationals. So let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> it, it, yeah, in a year of unprecedented, this one is un-unprecedented. And, and my understanding, and please, you probably are privy to more information than me, uh, when I get home and get into dad mode and honeydew mode, I, I am not one that's linked to what's going on with latest developments. I, I was told we won't run it to the U.S. Nationals because Zizzo can't return to Indy 3. Is that correct? That is my understanding. Yes, and it'll be... Yeah, the, so, yeah, yes. Yeah, so uh, I get it. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the guy... I feel for the folks at NHRA because they've had to make decisions that nobody should ever be faced with making in their lifetime. But I've never heard of an event, doesn't mean that there hasn't been one, where it hasn't been completed as soon as practicable, which would mean when the two contestants or the remaining contestants are together at the next venue. And I know Matt Hagan and I, at, at least I hope Matt Hagan and I are both going to be at the next event at Indy. And, uh, and uh, you sure would think we'd run that one off and just get it done. But how weird is it going to be that, first off, there's going to be minimum of three Indies this year. So the Indy 2 race won't be decided before Indy 3. It will be decided at, uh, well, it'll be decided at Indy 4. I'm sorry, at the U.S. Yeah. Nationals. Yeah. Yeah, so whatever. I mean, because the alternative is we could have lost in the semis and not had to worry about the math. I'm just happy as heck we're still in this. Yeah, the only thing I can think of that compares to this at all was Aaron Strong won Pro Stock a few years ago. He They made the final in Seattle. It rained. Yes. And uh, he was – but they completed – my understanding, if I remember correctly, they completed the other finals at Brainerd because we went to Brainerd after Seattle. I don't know. Exactly. Hey, yeah, I'm not uh, yeah, they, I'm not questioning. They only bled it over but, for yeah. him yeah. right because of their traveling schedule. So, yeah, I mean in a perfect world I'd like to finish it up. I, I think Hagen and I should go make our two qualifying runs at Indy 3 yep. and then come back for a final round that doesn't count towards qualifying. That would be reminiscent of how you did the shootout days yes. where that extra run didn't count towards qualifying. Yeah, I'm down with that too, and it would make a fun. Uh, it would actually make a nice, fun feature for our qualifying television show as well. Being the selfish guy that I am, I want the I want the hook to keep people watching to the to the end of the show. So maybe I'll petition. I'll petition on your behalf and see if we can make that happen. <laughs> yeah, it, it. You know, it's just going to be odd. The way it looks is that NHRA issued points up to where we the, the number of rounds that we've won. So so Hagen and I both got points for winning the semifinals and then so what's out there for grabs is 20 points for the final and we're just going to kick that one till three races from now so lord willing in the creek don't rise uh, we got a chance to do all that stuff man four races so far this season and uh, we keep seeing that infinite hero nitro funny car late running on sundays what's been the uh, what's been the major i don't want to say change because the car's been very strong since mid midpoint of last year but kind of what's been able to maintain the success so far Oh God! I sure hope Medlin and Guido aren't listening because you know sometimes, sometimes when you make a comment on the car, it's a little bit like telling people their child is ugly. So <laughs> my assessment has been, and I actually think this is going to be more of a compliment towards them. Uh, the last five races of last year, I don't think anybody had a stronger car than us, and that was just a, a matter of we whittled away and whittled away at it. We went to Pomona and we were dominant at Pomona. Uh, we were low or second low ET of all but one run there, and we left with the win. We show up at Phoenix, and we struggled. We only made one good qualifying run, but somehow we clawed our way into the final round. And, and I think that's the key, Brian. And when you've got a fast horse, I think you need to win. But there's going to be so many more races that you struggle than ones that you go out there and turn the knob and the car does exactly what you think. So for us to have struggled in Phoenix and still salvaged a final round out of it. Now, we go to Vegas, or to Indy 1, and we had front half the car. We had changed uh, a couple things in the bell housing because you know you, nobody with a six-disc keeps all six discs yeah. all year long. You're going to have to cycle some. And it threw us a little bit of a curveball. And so we lost to Hagen's second round with a run that would have won any other matchup that round. So, again, we battled back but we just didn't have the good fortune on our side. We come back to Indy 3, and finally we start, we're starting to listen to what this car is telling us. It wants a slightly different approach here, and I don't know how much of that 
is our bell housing change, our new tubing on the car, or just the fact that we're racing on a racetrack with prep conditions different than we've ever run on before. We don't have the same number of sportsman cars, the same number of days, the same number of runs there. So I'm loving the fact that when even when we're quote unquote struggling, we're still making late rounds. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's like any sports, any good championship team that wins a championship in in any stick and ball sport, they find ways to win. Like they're not out there. If you're a baseball team, you're not winning 160 games, but you're you're winning these grinder style games. Or in your case, you're making final rounds when it's a grinder style of a Sunday as opposed to just thumping people left and right. And that's uh, certainly the mark of a championship caliber team. Um, for you guys, now that we've run a couple of races with this two qualifying round format, uh, do you hate it? Are you okay with it? Do you like it? And how much has it changed the game? Well, when we run good off the trailer, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and when we don't, I hate it. Uh, I get to wear a lot of different hats at different times. I'm still a huge fan of the sport, and the fan part of me loves it. I mean, we would love to have more days for the fans. We'd like to have more runs in front of people there, but that's for practicality purposes. I totally agree on NHRA going to two days for a lot of these races. It just makes so much more sense there. So the thing about it is, is it's so anticlimactic when 15 or 16 cars show up and everybody gets four qualifying runs. There's no drama to it. You're racing for bonus points and position for lane choice. When you get 17-plus cars, you start to increase the drama. When you cut it down to two runs, you really increase the drama. Like last race, uh, you get uh, Dickie Venables and Matt Hagen coming off a win. Yep. They stumble on their first qualifying run. They soften the car up. It puts a hole out on their second and last qualifying run, and they're not in. And, boy, a lot of cars don't even make it to the finish line without lifting the supercharger in those conditions. They limped in, and then they got to race Ron Capp's first round, and they, they find their... their magic there so i think a lot more of that is going to happen a lot more of the big cars are going to find themselves in the bottom half of the field and you're going to end up with more first round matchups that are unique and unusual it's you know it's not that you haven't had those times where a hitter car qualifies in the bottom half of the field but now I, yeah. it, it's not going to be unexpected. I think we're going to see that at every single event. Yeah, I think there's going to be at least one or two. Yeah, I think it, you're almost guaranteed one or two cars that are just, you know, one of these things is not like the other in the back half of that field. And, you know, for for Ron Caps, my God, the two weeks in a row, it's like, oh, get this guy, cut this guy some slack somewhere. And, you know, the, the DSR funny car side of things is, uh, is looking – stellar right now. I mean, there's no really other way to say it. I look across that, and obviously it's uh, you're leading the points. Tommy Johnson Jr. is behind you by a handful, and, and Matt Hagen is, uh, is surging at this point, uh, having having climbed one race, and now he's in this delayed final with you. Um, does it feel that good? I mean, is there enough, and is there as much communication amongst everyone over there that you kind of all understand that, man, we're, we're, we're swinging the bat pretty good right now? Now, do you mean amongst the various teams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll say this. I mean, from the outside, it's easy to get a perspective that doesn't actually match reality. Um, Our crew chiefs don't all huddle together between runs. In fact, the the very nature of a crew chief's mentality, boy, they put the blinders on and surround themselves with their computers and their data. There's only so many minutes to make good tune-up calls. So I'll say this. Every trailer's door is unlocked. If we're struggling and we want to walk next door and talk to Dickie or vice versa, if John Collins and Ron Tober want to chat with each other, if anybody needs anything, it's always available. And it's even available if you're going to race them, although it's kind of an unwritten understanding that if we're running next round, we're not sharing data. But the philosophies for tuning these cars are so radically different, and not to mention the hard parts we run are different. Different numbers of clutch discs, uh, different ways of tuning the engine, different clutch levers, but even if, even let's say our car and Dickie Venable's car were set up with exactly the same hard parts, you could go back and forth for overall, uh, uh, for a generic approach to the racetrack. In other words, your clutch timer too, what, what did you change on it relative to Indy last week? But because those things are different, and the fact that the guys think differently. Dickie might tune with tire pressure. 
to add or take away traction, Guido and Medlin might tune with wheelie bar height or timing at the step of the throttle. So it's really hard to compare because the combos really are apples and oranges. Is there, for you, you know, obviously you're leading the points right now. Things are things are going pretty well. Is it a benefit? And this is a weird question, but is it a benefit to have the mentality, the mindset that almost like every one of these races is kind of kind of a gift, and we can't even depend on what the next one may be. We can't necessarily depend on what the schedule says because state to state things are changing so rapidly that we may not be able to go to a certain place. So, I guess. Rather than have the mentality, yeah, we'll get him next week, or ah, you know, we got another X amount of races to fix this. You really might not, and who knows when the Ferris wheel stops, so to speak. So, does that help or hurt things? Well, I, I guess in our situation, we're not complaining. We got a seventeen-point cushion. You know, it's kind of like going into Game One of the World Series, and 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 people tell you. Hey, we just did some stats, and guess what? We're going to give you a one-point lead going into the first inning. Okay, we'll take it. <laughs> and I think you could care so much about this, you could drive yourself absolutely crazy. Yeah. If you look at how fluid the schedule has been up to this point, and anybody that thinks there's going to be no changes between now and the finals... Oh, they're out of mind. I, yeah. I, yeah, I think you're being naive on that. I would love to think that we're going to go to Indy 3 and then go 11 races in a row starting with Topeka after that, but who knows? And you got Denver and Brainerd in limbo that could potentially seed back into the schedule if somebody else had to back out. So I think, you know, Brian, I guess you go back to saying you just kind of keep the same mentality. You show up at the race and you do the best you can. Well, to do the best you can, you really have to understand how important your job is. But if you're a driver and you dwell on how important your job is, you will stumble mentally. You, you know, it's like that the, the, uh, a platform diver on the last dive for the gold medal. They've got to go out there and just kind of disassociate their conscious mind from what's going on and go back to the 10,000 times they've done that dive in practice. So I work on it at home. I'm pushing the lawnmower around the yard couple days ago and I'm thinking about the way I'm moving the steering wheel at mid-track. I'm thinking about my focal point down there. There's a lot of ways you can get seat time in a funny car without spending 10 grand a lap in a funny car. So the approach I take is um, I'm going to practice as much as I can to keep my mind as sharp as I can. And when you get in the car, you kind of got to let all that training take over. To, to the point of what you just said, because we have raced and will continue to race at the same racetrack now multiple times in a row, you're able to, by what you just told me, you're able to actually hone in on certain specific things you're doing at that particular racetrack. So I'm guessing as you, as you speak to your focal point, you've now made X amount of runs week after week at Indy when you will continue to do that at this next race. So you can actually kind of even hone in on, on that specific environment of that racetrack. Oh, are you touching on my skill set here and my secrets? Yeah, so so a good point. Indy, if you looked at an aerial view, left-hand lane has two odd approach aprons that connect to it near the starting line that don't happen at any other racetrack. If you are using your peripheral vision when you're in the left lane and launch, there's a big gap in the wall for a period of time. You have got to get your eyes further... Yeah, you got to get your eyes further down the track faster when you're at Indy. When you're in the right-hand lane at Indy, you start looking at the tire marks going down there. That right lane pulls the cars left from half track on, which in most cases, you have to go with the flow and let the car gently ease left so you're in the better rubber. But there's a bump down there, and the bump gets worse the more inside you go. Well, now that we're getting repeated runs and repeated runs and repeated runs, there's some little subtleties as a driver you can do with the steering wheel to set yourself up better for conditions like that. We've never got a chance to go to the same race three times in a row to run national events, and it's it's a very odd deal, but it is what our playbook says right now, and we're just going to go with it. That's no, cool. And you mentioned something uh, that leads me to my next topic here and the fact that uh, Jack Beckman's hot rod history has been spectacular. It's a great series that uh, that you've done. It's kind of like a Mutual of Omaha's, uh, you know, wildlife <laughs> show. But, I uh, remember that. Um, I want to talk about this because it's it's a it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And the fact that you've put 
a ton of your own time. You've put a ton of research in. You've you've uh, amassed an incredible collection of drag racing uh, media to kind of comb through, as well as developing a lot of great relationships with the legends that were there. But the first thing I want to start out with here is having done some of this stuff myself. How awful is it to try to research drag racing history because none of it is accurate? <laughs> so so yeah, let me point something out and and. I don't take this the wrong way because I've been up in the announcer's booth many times and then I've watched myself later. I'm like, I can't believe I just misspoke. When you're in the announcer's booth with headsets on and the producers are talking in your head and you're trying to spit out numbers and facts and ETs and miles per hour, um, it's hard to get that stuff perfect and that's in the moment. So when you and I go back to research history, you, you'll, you'll do it by the the story, right? Somebody told me that, or the written word. And you assume that the written word is chiseled in granite, and there is so much of it that is absolutely false. But here's the problem. If Brian Loans writes a book on drag racing, the history of funny cars, and let's say you, you say the first race for Nitro Funny Car was the 71 U.S. Nationals, which is wrong. Actually, it wasn't even called the U.S. Nationals then, but was Indy 71. Well, any budding historian knows that you're a credible source for history and really good at what you do. They read that and commit that to memory. When they write their book 20 years later, they just regurgitate what you did. So I'm going back through books now because I've just got done reading this actual information and saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Well, so the problem is, if I'm going to correct that, and now there's two different versions out there, the next person that's read the original version and listened to my version doesn't know which one's correct now. So to the best of my ability, I am doing the most thorough job I can, and oftentimes I find myself saying, based on what I've read, or I believe this to be true because it's very hard to pin down facts. Yeah, it's it's it's... It's an amazing process because you'll pick up, you know, you'll pick up papers and magazines covering the same race and you'll read oh. like like they're not oh. even like there were two people at different racetracks. It's incredible. It, it, you're so, now, Bob Fry, I tell you, I have leaned so heavily on Brett Kepner, Phil Burgess and Bob Fry. And, and those guys and Lewis Bloom are just they're dynamite on this stuff. And you are, too. You have an a, uncanny ability for research. And. So what you try to do is corroborate stuff. Yep. Because oftentimes, Kepner and I will have a conversation, he'll call back 10 minutes later, he said, you know what, that was 71, uh, uh, this is what happened in 70. I'll call Garlitz. His memory is scary, it's so good. Tommy Ivo and I communicate all the time. I just talked to Gene Adams yesterday. You know, I, I'm, I just got done researching and I've written the script for 1960, and I will likely uh, record that in the next two or three days, then send it to Dodge Garage so they can edit it. Then my last two or three episodes, which will all be on 1960, will go up, and I am done for now. Uh, I don't know if I'll get back to this in the off season, but it's been a tremendous amount of work, but a labor of love. And the best part has been talking to the legends about this. I don't want to get off on a huge tangent, but how about this? Gene Adams, one of the, he's in the Hall of Fame as a crew chief. He still tunes nostalgia cars. He is on the cover of the very first national, or drag news, I'm sorry, from March 4th, 1955, winning his Oldsmobile uh, at the February 20th race of, of 1955 in Santa Ana. And they were partners on a car that's in the NHRA Museum now called the Albertson Olds, and it won 18 straight times at Lions, and it won the Nationals at Detroit in 1960. So before there was an Adams, Screamer, and Harris car, there was an Adams, Screamer, and Smith car. Well, I didn't know who the Smith was. I keep reading the 1959 drag newses. His name's Mort Smith. He works at Engel Cams with Ronnie Screamer, who later became a chassis builder. They work right down the street from Hillborn, which is where Gene Adams works. I tracked down Mort Smith, who's 87 years wow. old, living in Calabasas, and talked to him for 45 minutes yesterday about drag racing. Where else can a kid like me, that's been hooked on this since I was seven, get a chance to talk to somebody who I just read about from their exploits in 1959, and they're still around? It's an amazing story, and it's great, and it does it shows the absolute level of uh, dedication that you've you've put into this. And for me, looking back in the in the very formative era of this sport, 
before it was even a sport in and of itself in the early 50s, it is astonishing to me that it actually came together. You know, it's like it's to look at where it came from as a bunch of guys in car clubs just kind of screwing around to where it actually evolved into this this dedicated activity that is an actual motorsport is the most stunning part of the whole story to me. So, so one more quick anecdote. I'm researching 1959. I knew I was researching 1959. My brain is wrapped around 1959. Don Garliff gets burned very badly in Chester, South Carolina, uh, and it wasn't long after he put the supercharger on his car, and I read in one of the magazines he had a supercharger backfire. I wanted to make sure I got my facts straight. I called Don Garliff. I'm walking towards my office where my notepad is, and I misspoke as I asked him the question. I said, Don, when you got burned in Chester, in 1956 I had just said 1956 Uh, and he immediately responds he says Chester no no no. that was 1959 that was June 20th now by this time I'm sitting down thumbing through it was June 20th 1959 it was 61 years ago and the the man remembers every specific date so first-hand accounts are typically the most misleading yeah a guy just misremembers something, tells it to you like it's fact, you assume that it is, and they're just wrong. They missed it by a day, a month, a year, a driver, a car, a lane, whatever. But Garlitz and Ivo, oh my God, these guys are like robots with their memories. Unbelievable. Jack Beckman, thank you so much for taking some time today. A wide-ranging but fun conversation. Appreciate it, man, and I look forward to seeing you at the Dodge Nationals where if you win this race, uh, you will still have another race to win when you get to Indy. So it's good. I love, yeah, we usually say once a year, right. I'll see you in Indy, Brian, but so for the third time, I'll see you in Indy. Thanks, Jack. Take care. All right, so our third guest on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, none other than your friend and mine, Mr. Bruno Massel. Bruno, how you doing, man? Good, Brian, man. Good to be here, brother. How you doing? Good. So I wanted to catch up with you today, one, because you're going to be racing Pro Stock again at the Dodge Nationals uh, coming up next week, and two, because we always, like, introduce you as, you know, two-time Compliminator World Champ and all this other stuff, but, like, I don't know if a lot of people know how you kind of got here, so that's really what I want to talk to you about today. Like, I want to talk to you about kind of where you fell into this as a kid and everything else, so... That's, oh, so you want to you peel back the onion and get deep, huh? I want, I want to make you wail. I want to make you weep by the end of this. <laughs> but no. Uh, Sounds like a plan, brother. No, man, for me. So, like, it, it, at its earliest form, I mean, my dad drag race. You know, he uh, that's what we did as a family. So, as much as I was in the ball in uh, six sports, you know, I played football, basketball, you know, baseball, that stuff. We didn't do that as a family. It wasn't what we did. We went to the drag races. So, on the weekends, we didn't go camping, fishing. We were at the races. You know, I mean, as five years old I, there's pictures of me at byron where um i'd be pouring water out of a, a gallon jug to underneath the tires for him to do a burnout and that was normal today you'd get killed for letting a kid get that close but that was that was what you did you know so that's how it was it, you know for for me driving like you know i got into driving and stuff it was something i never actually aspired to do in any way shape or form um racing was just what we did as a family and uh, my dad has a business of all from it the convert drive stuff so um it came down to it. i just got done playing sports uh i had a small stint playing college football it didn't go my way and uh it was a matter of trying to fill that competitive void of sports and my dad had a, a car he bought to flip a, a super comp dragster and i said well you got this thing there's no money invested in it if i if it doesn't go bad i'm not going to feel bad he's not going to be any money out so we took it to get licensed and i did my first burnout i was hooked that's and it's awesome uh, it, it's history from there i mean i was literally hooked from the second i did my first burnout and then i you know the the from the competitive side of it now it's like how do i get good how do i win and that's all it came down is finding a way to get better at my craft because at that time when i was coming up in super comp racing i'm racing against edmund richardson scotty richardson david rampy every week <laughs> <laughs> and those three taught me a lot of lessons <laughs> a lot of lessons in how to lose very early you know what i mean but that's how you get better you know i try and tell my kids that in sports and everything else is you want to go against the best and that's what's going to make you a better person and it's going to feel that competitive drive it's you're going to make some people fold it makes some people rise up, and I got a little better. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that's uh, always interesting to me is guys that played athletics at a high level and drag race, um, you know, there's not a lot of physical specimens out there in the sport of drag racing, if you haven't noticed. Uh, so guys that have <laughs> guys that have done that, I'm interested in the mentality-wise. Like, you played high-level college football, and I, you, discounted your, you discounted your college football days, but you played at a high level in college. And I guess my question is, 
is it the same kind of competitive thing that you have to get yourself into? Like, is it is the same mentality of running out of the tunnel on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning at a college football game the same as rolling out of the staging lanes? I mean, what's the difference? You know, I, it, that's it's a great it's a great question because it is and it isn't. You know, like at a points meet, it's first round. No, it's not at all. When you like, I tell you, I rolled up under the tower at Indy for the final of the U.S. Nationals with my you know my Copo Camaro, and I had every goose bump I did walking out in the swarm at uh, at Hawkeye uh, uh, Cover. You know, or, I'm sorry, Hawkeye Kinnick Stadium at Iowa City. I mean, it's just that kind of vibe because it's all what it's. It's, you feel if you've got enough dedicated put into it, you feel that kind of pressure. You feel that kind of glory when you get on the other side of it. It's uh, it's, it's it can be that embracing and, and you know you're all in at that point. So it's those moments you sit in the car and you look up in the stands and you see the TV cameras and you see your family sitting there and everything you got into this one run. And it, it, it gets you going, and it's got to feel that competitive juices, and you feel it. It hurts worse than to lose than it does to win. And almost half the time you're up there just trying not to lose, which is not the right mindset to have. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned as well, um, coming up, your dad, uh, Bruno Sr., I guess we'd say. Uh, yeah. And your dad basically invented the idea of driving um, like a Lenko-style transmission with a torque converter. This was something that that he perfected, <laughs> if you will, and it changed drag racing forever. I mean, it really was one of the we look at things that happen mechanically in the sport over time and and the, the bruno drive is something that uh, changed the face of competition i have to imagine that that was not something that he perfected overnight and i'm sure you as a kid kind of watched him work and struggle with that can you talk about that process yeah for sure brian you know and i appreciate you bringing that up because you know i don't think he gets the credit that he really deserves i mean i got in all honesty my father's a genius literally like in mil- he never went to college he didn't get the opportunity to in the military he tested at the genius level during all his entrance exams um he was a guy who was completely self-taught and and learned you know figured stuff out found a better way from early on his first invention really for drag racing was uh power glide pan and shield before that, you had a big ballistic diaper that would wrap around the power glide shield. And I'd be the guy after every race hosing it off with, <laughs> with Dove soap to get the oil off of it. And it would be hard to get back on. It was just cumbersome. And, but you had to have some kind of ballistic shield. So my dad invented one made of aluminum that wrapped tightly around the, the uh, power glide and had a pan that was actually SFI approved as well for, three, for protection. And within two years, 14 different companies knocked it off. So when it came wow. to the converter drive, he kept it really close to his chest. It was something that he wanted to do. And actually, he was really looking to do it in pro stock. You know, my dad's good friends with Warren. It's something they talked about all the time. Is and as a way of making it work, um, is it, it originally through the pro stock car. But it came to a point. My dad raced super comp with uh, the door car. He's very unconventional um, and did really well. He won the all stars. Had a lot of success. But with that, at the time, <clears throat> power glides weren't able to handle the power that they are today. So he lost his first two national finals to broken transmissions. Uh. Um, and. I was sitting at the line at Columbus where he was double O to the guys like 100 and broke the trans in the starting line and ended the day. So that kind of really pushed him forward as to there's a better way. And literally we're at the shop one day and he's like, all of a sudden goes, I got it. And I was too young and wasn't enough into it. This is like in 87, 88. Sure. And he's like, I figured it out. He literally sat on a lathe for the next three days with a chunk of aluminum, whittling it down to what became the very first converter drive. Um, it's, uh, it's miraculous the way it came together and to watch him kind of delve into it and literally in a storybook fashion, took it to Houston in 1990, hadn't even applied for patents yet. It was just going to be for his own car, for his own use. And he won the super nationals <laughs> and super top with the first time out. So it, it was pretty poetic the way it all came down. His first national event with a trans he invented. Bob Fry was there, covered it for, um, NHRA Today show at the time. And then Phil Burgess did a great article on it and that's where it all evolved from. And then people calling him up saying, Hey, what do we got here? And then my dad decided to file for patents and do all that and make it commercially uh, commercially available. Man, that's awesome! What a great story! Yeah, it's I, I didn't know really, the, really cool. I didn't know the angle of him actually winning the first event with it. That's uh, yeah, that's even very, cooler. Yeah, the very first time out, and it was the one race I wasn't there because I was in school and I had a football game my freshman year. <laughs> <laughs> that all works out in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. But my mom was there. It was, it was just a cool moment, you know what I mean, for him and, uh, and well deserved. You know what I mean? It's just uh, I. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, racing has been my life from as a kid growing up to pour water in the water box to getting to stand next to guys like you and talk about the sport and still be able to compete in it. You know, um, it's you mentioned the physical side of stuff. I, I approach a lot of it. I think that I want something I kind of get back to is, you know, it, there is an advantage if you're in shape, if you're healthy, especially yeah. when you get in the dog days of summer like this. Um, a perfect example, like in 2009, I first my first real chance to chase a championship I have a car in comp eliminator. If you have a fast car, you want to run in the heat. It gives you an advantage because 
other people can't run close enough to, to hit their index. So that it gives you a bigger margin for error. So I purposely target Topeka, Kansas, all the hottest, nastiest races, Bowling Green, Kentucky, that you could go to. But to give myself an advantage, I would go in the middle of the day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, go for a four-mile run with a sweatshirt on, and then get right on my practice tree, similar in the basement, and have lights. I'd have a strobe light flashing. I've got a full tree, music playing. And so my heart rate's up. I feel like I'm going to pass out and still have to be able to do my job hitting it, hitting the tree on a bottom bulb to try and – so this way, when I get in the car at the racetrack, you know, people are dying, can't wait to get out. You're at a level of calm and cool. And maybe it helped me win three more rounds that year. The three more rounds makes a difference in the long haul when you talk about a championship. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really cool. That's like some that's some legit kind of situational training right there. That's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, and that's the way I approach things. And I think you, when you're an athlete and you compete at a high level, you, you look for the smallest things. In, in a lot of our drag races, the same way. Let's think about KB racing. Everybody, you know, the people who have success, everybody looks for. You can find one percent better in anything you do. You're going to do what you have to do to do that. Um, from a physical standpoint, it's something that I figure I'm going to take it upon myself to do it because there's so much focus in driving one of these cars. And especially in the heat, when you got a fire suit on, the doors are shut, and the guy oils down in front of you, you've got to be able to keep your wits about you. So for me, that was a way of trying to get an edge um, the best you can. And I, it, it's something that I think there is an advantage to doing it. No, I, I think there is too. I mean, it's uh, it's training basically, and like we look at any sort of profession ever. I mean, if you're going to be a pilot or something, they make you put a blindfold on and know where the gauges are, know where the switches are, right? So it's like it's all that right. kind of stuff. So when you get put in a situation that you don't have to, you're, it's not foreign to you. You're you're acclimated to what's going to happen. So that's uh, that's interesting. I got one more question on your family, and then and then we'll move on to kind of what's coming yeah. up next weekend, but. I finally met your parents in person for the first time at the last or at the first indie race. I, I've, I've known your parents through you, obviously, for years, but I, it was the first time I got to talk to them. And, you know, just watching your dad in the starting line and stuff like that. Do you guys share the same personality? Because you seem to me to be a more intense guy, at least outwardly. Your dad seems like the quiet, intense type. We're complete polar opposites. My father, <laughs> you know, my father, you know, was, was born in Austria, moved here when he was seven. He's that stoic German Austrian type, doesn't say much, but when he does, you better listen. That's my father, <laughs> you know, and my mother will talk your ear off. She's you know, the Italian saleswoman. She will tell you every story if you let her, it, it, you know, Brian, if I would have left you by the golf cart, she would have kept you for two hours, <laughs> you know, and, and I say that in, in, in the, the most admirational sure, way. Sure. I you know, so I'm a definitely a mix. I get the intensity of my father, but it's vocalized like my mother. <laughs> this is the best way of explaining it. No, that's great. I love that. That's a, that's a good mix of uh, good mix of the two. <laughs> right, so, right. So coming up at the Dodge Nationals, you'll be back in the pro stock car. I know that the first weekend was uh, a learning experience in so many ways for you. So I guess what were your biggest takeaways from the first indie event that you can kind of apply here? And uh, physically, is there anything you're going to make changes to in the race car or anything like that? You know, first takeaway is if those of you who've never driven one and only see the best in the world do it week in and week out, the shit is really tough. I mean, they make it look really good. You know, you've got Jed Coughlin who watches in-car cam and it looks like he's, you know, you know, a, a, a gazelle running through the uh, the wilderness. I mean, he makes it look so effortless and so does Eric Enders and, you know, Jason Line, Greg Anderson. These people, they're so, so good at their craft. And I'll tell you something, it's very humbling getting in that car for the first time in seven years and then there's an extra pedal I don't know what to do with. <laughs> you know, there's all, all kinds of stuff going on to get to the feel of the electronic fuel injection is is an art in its own. And that's the biggest thing is I wanted to try and do is try and get as many runs as I could just to get a feel for the car. Um, the simulator is great, and I, I, I thank Jeg for it you know, tremendously allowed me to play with his for a number of months to get used to that extra pedal, at least know what I'm, where my feet are supposed to go. But you still have to get a feel of how fast that thing accelerates, how quick you have to shift, and how much is going on in that car in a short period of time. And initially, I was behind the car. There's no doubt about it. Um, they gave me a car. We look at our incrementals. That back half is in 3,000s of Jeg and Erica. Um, you can't ask for any more than yeah. that. That's what Elite does. They give you the best out there possible. Um, you know, we're a new team coming together. Um, I'm excited the fact that I've got Gary and uh, Taylor Chemisky are coming back with me in a couple weeks. Um, they were one- terrific. They've been around forever. I know them from the comp days. Um, I just, I think every run I got better driving, um, and I think that's important. It's just trying, when I made a mistake, no one in the Elite camp was down on you. No one was busting your chops. Everyone was there to pick you up. Erica, I mean, she's an absolute doll. I mean, she sat there alongside me, went through the runs with me. Um, like my mentor, I told her she's I'm like my Jedi training and she's my, uh, my Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's how great she was to work with. So it's, it's something that's not going to happen overnight. It's something that, uh, God, I hope is, is a long work. Well, is a long process, but I get to get yeah. better quicker than, than or sooner than later. 
but uh, just a terrific experience dealing with that entire team. I mean, there's six cars are yielding. Every one of them is capable of winning. It's just a matter of the team putting it together to make it happen, and a lot of that comes on the driver. So this weekend, we're doing some different things with the car, I say, in two weeks to try and fit me better. Um, if you look around, I'm, I'm one of the bigger guys, yeah. height-wise and stuff, physically getting into a car that wasn't made for me. So you just try and make it work. And uh, we're going to change some stuff with steering wheels and steering angles. The biggest problem I had besides once I got caught up to the speed of the car was my legs were, were in a situation where I dropped the clutch. It hit my left arm that was holding the steering wheel. It caused me to yank the, the steering wheel. So it would take me the third gear to get the car back settled, which we're losing a lap time. It's just that simple. And it was also changing me that my release point of my leg, I'd have to do it off of the side to an angle. So I would try not to hit my, my, uh, my <laughs> steering wheel, my arm, um, which is causing you to be slower. Just the, the tendons, ligaments in your hip straight back are faster than they are off to the side. So we're going to play with a bunch of different stuff and try and get it so I can fit the car a little better. Um, I think come the fall, when I get back out there again, I might, there's, there's a pretty good chance I'll be in a different car that's actually built for me. Okay. Um, so there, there's, nothing but positive things coming down the road and uh this you know, in the next two weeks i'm just gonna have to do a little bit better job of adapting just that simple and you know one last question before i let you get back to work would be what is the most valuable thing like mentally coming into this week like what is the one thing that you didn't know going into that first one that you do know now <clears throat> how was all going to come together i mean honestly i questioned can they field six competitive cars? Is there enough people out there? Do I have my own rig? Will I fit in the car physically? I mean, I hadn't even seen this thing before, let alone sat in, let alone did anything else. Just how the whole process worked and um, and getting caught up to speed on everything, uh, from the fuel injection to what switches need to be on to just the simple basics of the car. So it was a massive learning experience in a very short period of time. Um, and now I feel so much more confident going in, knowing that I can't handle the car going down the racetrack, which honestly, I... I think I've got enough runs in my other stuff um, that going down the track is the least of my worries. It's just getting it off the starting line, getting to the point from the burnout yeah. to the staging process <laughs> to get it to leave the starting line. Um, from there, it's, it's a fun ride. I mean, we, we, the, I'd had a parachute not come out on the, the probably the best run we made all weekend. We went 666 and um, was able to get it stopped. But, you know, it wasn't a panic thing because you make a lot of runs. And it, that part of it's the easy part of the fun part. It's getting to that point where you like, you like to clutch out. And that's where I need to get better at. So that's what I learned all along is I, I can do it. I know I can do it. I just have to get better in doing it, become more fluid. Cool. Well, that's good stuff, man. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for taking some time out of your day. You need to go back to your undisclosed uh, suburban garage location <laughs> to finish. What, what, are you guys, uh, what are you guys screwing together on the show here? Uh, we, we are actually entering uh, episode six of the season. We'll do 10 this year. We're talking about Garage Squad. And uh, it is the uh, ratings juggernaut garage squad, I should say, <laughs> on, the, on the Motor Trend Network. No, man, we've got a great, another great story this week. Just came, finished one yesterday. That was one of those tearjerkers where it's uh, some, some people go through some tough stuff. And uh, fortunately, we're able to kind of put a little uh, smile on their face sometimes with helping them get a car off the ground that, that has some significance to them. So that's kind of what we do here. So um, long, hot days in the sun, but it, it's worth it, man. Thank you very much, Bruno Massa. Look forward to seeing you in about 10 days as we go racing at the Dodge Indy Nationals. Be good, and uh, it'll be fun watching you let the clutch out again, man. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Just so you know, you're my first, my very first podcast, buddy. I saved it for you. This is amazing. This is amazing news. <laughs> Great conversation with Bruno Massel to round out this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Can't wait to get out to Lucas Oil Raceway, Indianapolis again next weekend. We get a weekend off coming up. Hopefully you get to spend some time with your family and go out there and enjoy the sunshine if it is so in your neck of the woods. Pay attention to NHRA.com for our airing schedules for the NHRA Dodge Indy Nationals. And most importantly, if you want to go at attend the race they will be allowing 25 percent attendance and there is no restriction as far as who can buy the tickets previously you've had to have been a u.s nationals ticket holder or you've had to have been a ticket holder or an any trade member to get tickets to these first couple of races not so anymore if you'd like to attend the dodge indy nationals you can go to nhra.com and score your tickets there ticket buying will be restricted to the capacity rules of the state of indiana but anyone can get in the gate so long as you get in before the tickets are sold out Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider Podcast. We'll be back next week to set up the big race in Indy for the third time this year. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon.